Jonah just had this moment of great spiritual maturity, and now he's sort of back to type. And why is that? And and it, this is one of the reasons why I really like the book of Jonah so much, is because I'm just like this. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Francisco's Sermon Podcast. This is a message from our worship service on Sunday mornings in downtown San Francisco. This podcast is a ministry of our church, and we're praying it's useful for you and for the kingdom, for the praise of His glory. The sermon scripture today is taken from the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry with the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go ahead and dive into the scripture here. Um, what we're what we're landing here in in the book of Jonah in chapter four here is is the end of the book of Jonah and it, it's it's a little anticlimactic like so far in Jonah's life and we're going to do a little recap here because I know uh, starting at the end of the book uh, it may not give us all the context we need to really understand it but it's a little anticlimactic you know it's it's just Jonah and God in the desert with a plant talking about it. Um, you know, this has been an epic tale so far. There's been uh, storms and sailors and life and death situations and swallowed by giant fish. And 
huge kingdoms, um, uh, you know, uh, squaring off with God. Like there, there's, it's been relatively epic right up until this point. Um, you know, it's almost like if I were writing the book of Jonah, uh, I would have probably ended it at the end of chapter three. I probably wouldn't have, if I were Jonah, included this chapter. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, some, it's hard to understand why Jonah's behaving this way. Um, and, and, but I think, uh, the reason that it's actually here is, is pretty remarkable. Um, so let's ask God, let's go before God right now and, and talk to him and ask him, uh, to show us that reason and show us, uh, why Jonah 4 is here in the book and what, what we should react to, uh, this interchange between him and Jonah. Heavenly Father, uh, we'll praise you for this opportunity to open up your word. We, we pray that you diminish uh, the characters in the story. We diminish us, diminish uh, the recipients, and, and magnify yourself. Show us your character through Jonah 4. Let, let who you are show through, and not who we want you to be. Um, and these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So... We're gonna do a little recap here. We're gonna we're gonna go through Jonah a little bit and and remind us how we got here. How did we get in the desert here, um, with with uh, Jonah and God and this plant and um and and in this position where 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 we have this interchange and um you know in the beginning of Jonah one uh you know when we talked about Jonah a couple of years ago um. You know, we see that 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 he alludes to this a little bit in the beginning of the passage. He said this when he's here in verse two, he's saying he prayed to the Lord and said, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? Well, in the beginning of the book of Jonah, this is exactly what he said. Uh, when when the Lord comes to Jonah and says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to that city. He runs away. Um, he doesn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites. Um, part of the reason that is, and a little background on the Ninevites is, um, they were enemies of Israel. They were enemies of Jonah and his nation. Um, and because they were enemies, uh, Jonah resented them. Uh, and these, you know, they were like, they deserved Jonah's resentment a little bit. They were harsh, militaristic conquerors. Um, the Assyrians at the time were like the cruel conquerors of the world. They had conquered most of the Middle East at that point and had a huge empire. Uh, that was that was based off this city Nineveh. Um, it was the sort of capital of this empire that had extended over most of the Middle East. So Jonah runs away and <laughs> he he boards a ship for Tarshish and and uh, with a bunch of Phoenician sailors and immediately you know as they get further along uh, uh, in in their in their voyage from Jaffa away from God, uh, God shows up in a storm. Uh, and and scares all the sailors and and uh, uh, in this tempestuous sea and Jonah says, well, there you know God's here because of me. Go ahead and toss me in the water. Um, you know, essentially very similar to this. Just go ahead and let me die um, so that you guys can survive. Um, and uh, but that's not actually what happens. <laughs> they toss Jonah in the water, thinking he's going to die. The storm calms and everything. But, but Jonah doesn't die. Uh, the Lord appoints a giant fish to come save him, and he swallows up Jonah. 
um, sort of miraculously and saves Jonah from, from certain death. Um, and, and Jonah realizes this. He, he, when we get to Jonah 2, the second book in, this, in, in Jonah, um, he actually bursts out into song. Like he starts singing in the belly of the whale, this beautiful song, and uh, goes into the, the thanksgiving in his heart. And, and he, he uh, uh, you know, has hope in the steadfast love of, of God. And he ends the song by saying, um, Yahweh is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation. You will save me. You know, uh, in, in your steadfast love and mercy, you'll save me. Um, you know, he's very, very um, uh, grateful uh, for this mercy of God when he is the recipient of it. <laughs> um, so then we get, we move on to chapter three, um, and and I'm going to read a few passages out of chapter three, and then. Um, uh, when Jonah actually then gets spit up on the shore, he goes to preach to Nineveh. Um, and when he preaches to Nineveh, he preaches a really, really short, really short, tiny sermon. It's <laughs> literally, he says, yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he says. Uh, you know, that's the only part of his sermon that's recorded. Um, and surprisingly enough, it works. The king hears this message and uh, you know, he, he issues this proclamation. I'm going to read it here. And he issued a proclamation published through, through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out to the mighty God. Let everyone turn from their evil ways and from the violence in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And may turn his fierce anger so that we do not perish. And when God saw what they did, he, he saw how they turned from their evil ways. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to him and did not do it. And so that's the end of chapter three. That is the sentence immediately before chapter four, verse one, where it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Um, so here we are. We're picking up the story after after this sort of epic tale of Jonah running from God, being saved, you know, having a change of heart, being spit up on the beach, going to preach to Nineveh, and now he's reverted back to his original state. Um, uh, like, I, you know, I have number of two small children now, um, and when you're, when you're training them to do anything, let's say you're training them to sleep through the night, you're training them to go, uh, to use the bathroom or whatever it might be. Um, they go through periods of time called regressions. And you, all of the books and literature talk about this, where, you know, they might be sleeping through the night, you know, pretty consistently for a couple of months. And then all of a sudden, they go back to the way they used to be. And they wake up and they're crying and screaming in the middle of the night again. And you're not sure why. Or, you know, they 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 go a couple of months without having any accidents. And then all of a sudden, they have an accident out of the blue. It's, a, it's it, the, the, all the baby books call these regressions. What Jonah's having here is a spiritual regression. You know, he's going back to where, I mean, he, and you could see it in his own words. He's going back to where he was before he left. Well, it's almost like this, this huge epic event of salvation. It's almost like he's forgot about it. It's like, oh, see, God, this is what I was talking about. I didn't want to preach to them because I didn't want them to be saved. Um, and now he's upset again. Um, this is another, in, there's another interesting fact here that 
that uh, that kind of struck me. Um, one of my one of my favorite sermons of all time, the sermon that Chris actually turned me on to, is called Ten Shekels in the Shirt," and it's 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 a sermon by a pastor named Terrace Reedhead. And in that sermon, he actually <laughs> he does something that that I think is kind of illustrative. Um, he goes through a bunch of the Old Testament prophets' lives, and he shows what horrible failures they were as prophets. So let's take, for example, uh, let's take Noah. Noah built, you know, we, we know the story of Noah in the, in, the, uh, in, in the Old Testament where he builds an ark to save, his, you know, to, to save from utter destruction, kind of similar sort of thing uh, to escape God's wrath. But his job wasn't to build the ark. His job was to preach to, to, preach to people, to, to prophesy, to say, like, you know, turn from your evil ways that you'll be saved. I mean, uh, uh, or you'll be destroyed, which is exactly what Jonah preaches here. Um, and, you know, he preaches for hundreds of years. Like, like his whole life he's preaching, essentially. And he only converts seven people. <laughs> his wife and his kids and their wives. That's it. No one believes him. Um, Jeremiah spent most of his life obeying God to the team. He was much more obedient than Jonah was. Um, he, he obeys God. He preaches exactly what he says he should preach. And he spent his whole life being hated. People tried to kill him. Um, nobody listened to him. A couple of times he complains to God. It's like, God, I'm, tell, I'm doing what you're saying and no one's listening and, and they want to kill me. Like prophets don't usually, you know, a lot of the Old Testament prophets don't have the kind of success that Jonah has and they handle it a lot better. Um, <laughs> Jonah Jonah has preached uh, two times in this book. Uh, once, once he preached to the sailors, and the whole ship is converted. And then he preaches again here to the king, to, to the Ninevites, and the entire city repents. Like Jonah has had phenomenal success from a from an Old Testament prophet standpoint. He has everyone he has preached to has heard him, and has listened. Um, isn't that the way we are sometimes? Uh, it's another line that Chris always uses that I really enjoyed um, is that, you know, sometimes success is the truest test of your character. Because if you look, like if we look back in chapter two, when Jonah's swallowed by the whale, he's faced with a real life and death situation. Like, and some of us are actually going through situations like this right now. I mean, we heard it in the prayer request where you're facing this real life and death, um, where, where real loss and real mourning and, and real... And, and when he's facing that situation, uh, you know, imminent death in the ocean, he does pretty well. Like he handles, he handles that trial pretty well. You can see it in his response, this beautiful psalm that he sings from the belly of the whale, talking about um, the Lord being his salvation. But here he gets spit out on the beach. He goes to Nineveh and does exactly what he was, you know, had been avoiding all the time, has phenomenal success from a prophet standpoint. Um, and his reaction to his success is way, way worse and more spiritually immature than his reaction to the real life and death trial that he went through just two chapters earlier. Like it's a, it, it, you're supposed to, it's supposed to be sort of this jarring realization when you read this um, that like, you know, Jonah just had this moment of great spiritual maturity and now he's sort of back to tight. Um, and why is that? And and it, this is one of the reasons why I really like the book of Jonah so much, uh, Jonah so much is because I'm just like this. There are lots of times in my life where, you know, I, 
I, I might be on the spiritual mountain. You know, I might have um, shared the gospel with somebody and it, and it went through, you know, and they heard and, and or I may have, you know, had um, uh, a wonderful success in my life, uh, spiritually speaking. And then two days later, I turned around and I am complaining about something stupid, right? <laughs> like, you know, the thing that I'm actually angry about God later on is like so much smaller in comparison to the great grace that he has given me so far. Um, so I really relate to Jonah in this. And I'm really glad that this part of the Bible is shared because, um, you know, he has no problem with God's mercy and salvation at all when he's the recipient of it. But now, He's witnessing someone else receiving God's mercy and steadfast love. He, he says it very specifically himself right here. It's, Therefore, now, uh, uh, for I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean, it's almost exactly the same thing that he says in the belly of oil when, when he says, uh, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you uh, and forsake their uh, idols for the hope of steadfast love. Like this exact same mercy that he was hoping for in the belly of the whale, he's now uh, you know, sort of shaking his fist at God and saying, see, I knew it. You were merciful to me, and now you're being merciful to them. And I wish I would have rather died. That's essentially what he's saying. <laughs> he's going back on the salvation that he's talking about in the in the belly. He said, I wish I had died. I wish this hadn't happened. Um, you know, and I wish I could still die now. Um, and, you know, which is a pretty stunning claim. Um, but there's something about it that's really interesting. Like, just like he reacted in the belly of the whale with this prayer that he preaches and this psalm that he sings. He's also praying to God here. So he goes out from the city and he starts praying. Uh, and he prays out of anger. Um, and, and and he's being really silly. Um, and and But the interesting thing about that is God meets him there. He meets him in that prayer and in that silliness. And I found that like when my heart is like that, when I, when I go through uh, these sort of valleys of spiritual immaturity where, where I'm shaking my fist at God, whoa, that's unjust. Why did that happen? Um, and I, if I pray to him about it, he comes and meets me, which is exactly what, what God is doing here. And um, in, in his tenderness, and even in Jonah's pettiness, um, uh, God comes to him in this sort of, it's almost gentle way, um, and shows him, and, and turns the mirror back on Jonah and shows him who he is. Um, first of all, like, you know, in response to this prayer, God says, why are you angry? Like, do you do right? To, are you right to be angry? Um, and and Jonah doesn't seem to really get it because he, he goes outside the city and just sets up a booth. Like now that that God has sort of turned away from disaster of Nineveh, like he goes out and sits at the city and just basically watches, you know, sort of waiting for them to screw up again. Um, uh, you know, hoping that 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 the the, the hellfire and brimstone will still come. And so he sits up a booth and he watches. Um, and, and in that sort of state, he tenderly, God tenderly comes to Jonah and says, um, he appoints, he uses this word appoint here, which is kind of interesting. God appointed for, for Jonah uh, a plant. Um, 
and then he appoints a worm to eat that plant, and then he appoints an east wind. You can see that God is actually sort of manipulating Jonah's environment to make an illustrate for an object lesson. <laughs> you know, uh, it's very—it's actually very tender if you think about it. It's God coming to essentially Jonah's throwing a fit in the desert, and God comes to him in tenderness and gives him an object lesson. Um, when, when God would have been perfectly right to grant Jonah's wish and said, "Okay, Jonah." Uh, you can die. Like you disobeyed me. You, you know you've you've uh, you haven't listened to me a number of times. You still don't get it, even after you know uh, you preach preach to the Ninevites. You still don't understand uh, what I'm trying to teach you here. Um, but he doesn't. He's very tender. He creates an object lesson in the plant. And what's kind of interesting is about this word appointed. It's the same language that he uses for the fish. So. God appointed a big fish to come swallow Jonah um, earlier in chapter one. And that word appointed is sort of tied together in the book of Jonah is talking about God. The fish becomes Jonah's salvation. It saves Jonah from his imminent death. And what, what God is doing here with the plant, with the worm, with the east wind, and appointing these things, the reason that uses the same word here to describe that is that this is also for Jonah's salvation. Like this is also God's coming out to the booth to save Jonah from himself with this object lesson illustration. Uh, and, 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 and it's really actually amazingly tender if you look at what God is doing here. This very gentle, like uh, uh, sort of lesson involving a plant and a worm, and, and and being a little bit too hot in the sun all day. Uh, you know, Jonah's not in a life or death situation anymore, but God uses this um, uh, to show him, to teach him, um, to give him this, this lesson that he's trying to give him, which we get to at the end of the, of the passage here, with, when God again says exactly the same phrase, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes! I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah again interprets this as another life and death situation, which it's clearly not. Um, and and the Lord says to him, "You pity the plant for which you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Yet should I not pity, uh, pity Nineveh, for which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle." So what? God is revealing to Jonah here in the desert is God is revealing to Jonah who he is. And Jonah seems to even know it, but he doesn't seem to be able to understand how it arrives practically because God is showing him. <laughs> it's like, I knew you were a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. God is showing him, look, Jonah, I have applied that to you. <laughs> why can you not then go apply it to the Ninevites? Um, you know, and Jonah points the finger, well, the Ninevites, you know, they're really bad people. And they were really bad people. And, and the, king, the king of Nineveh himself admits that. Turn from your evil ways. Stop from your violence. Like, in order for you to turn away from your evil ways and stop from your violence, you must know that you were doing it, right? Um you know, and so Jonah is saying, like, he's sort of saying, he's sort of opening up this conversation, and he's saying, 
I get your mercy, God, but where is your justice? Where's the justice, right? These are bad, evil people. Where's the justice? Why, why are they not getting this 40-day proclamation that they deserve? And if we look really closely, we can see that God is showing them why they don't get the 40, 40 days of destruction that they deserve. Um, it, and, and so this, this interchange is, is less about Jonah. It's less about me and you. And it's more about the character of God. Um, you, for one, you can look at this and you can see that like when, when, when he's referring to the people of Nineveh, he describes them as they don't know their right hand from their left. Um, and that, that phrasing is essentially like, it's not that they literally don't know their right hand from their left. It's that he's saying that they spiritually, they have absolutely no idea. They're spiritually clueless. They have no idea the, the matters of God, um, uh, you know, and he's admitting that. And we're seeing here that God cares about the spiritually clueless, um, which is, I think, particularly relevant to our, you know, West Coast culture. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll pick on my own industry, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I work in, in software and, and, you know, if you, you heard the stereotypes about software engineers, uh, there's a festival in San Francisco that a bunch of them go to eventually out in the desert called Burning Man. Um, and, and I have some coworkers that actually go to this festival and they're staunch atheists. They, they don't believe in, in God or religion or anything like that, but they go out to Burning Man and um, they, and they come back and I ask them about it. It's like, well, tell me what it's about. It's like, well, the only way I can describe it is it's this spiritual experience, right? Um, which is, I find so strange because you're an atheist and you don't believe in spiritual experiences, right? I mean, that's that level of spiritual, uh, like that level of like self-unawareness. Like my, like I really crave this spirituality. I crave this thing. I want it so bad that I go out into the desert and burn a giant idol uh, to get it. But yeah, I don't believe it exists, but like, like this is the kind of clueless, the Ninevites have this sort of cluelessness, right? They have this sort of spiritual blindness, right? And God has sympathy for those people. And sometimes we as Jonah or the believer or the Israelites or whatever, you know, metaphor you might be in the story, we'll look at that spiritual clue cluelessness and absolutely turn our nose up and say that's ridiculous that is completely inconsistent why why are you doing that um and and i think we fail to look at them the way god does um and to our detriment um because what's interesting about this is that nineveh does also reverse <laughs> Nineveh also goes back to the way they used to be. Eventually, you can see that this generation of people repents, and and actually Jesus Jesus holds them up and says, you know, uh, in Matthew chapter twelve, he actually references this this exact event, and he said, you know, at the end times, at the end judgment, there will be Ninevites standing up and proclaiming judgment on Israel because they listened to Jonah, and one greater than Jonah is here preaching to you now, right? So, so the Ninevites, some of the Ninevites genuinely got it so much so that, that at the end of time, they will be preaching to the Israelites and condemning them. Um, but the reality of the situation is, is a few generations later, they reverted back to their back to type as well. They also re went back to their violent um, 
uh, conquering tendencies. Um, and God, again, comes to them about two centuries later, comes to them and says the exact, almost the exact same proclamation, Nineveh will be overturned. Um, and this time they don't repent. And he does come in, wipes out the city, burned to the ground, um, and, and, and salted and everything. And, and no one's able to build another civilization on top of it for years and centuries later. But what God realizes about this, that Jonah doesn't, um, you know, because Jonah's asking for that justice. Like he's basically, he's asking for God. He's saying, hey, where's your sense of justice? These people are evil. They deserve it. That it should be wiped off the surface of the planet. But the funny thing about that is, is that the mechanism by which God delivers this justice to the Ninevites uh, is King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar II. This is the same king that is in the book of Daniel, uh, which is a couple centuries after this. Um, this same king that God sends in judgment over Nineveh and wipes it out, God also sends in judgment over Israel. Nebuchadnezzar is the king that comes in, conquers Israel, and enslaves all the people, specifically as a judgment of God against Israel. Because Jonah is, is sort of a, in this story, a proxy for the Israelites. He's sort of their spiritual leader representing them. And this attitude that he has towards the Assyrians, uh, the Assyrians, is sort of representative of what Israel's attitude sort of was towards the Assyrians. But the thing that, that, that Jonah doesn't understand when he's crying out in judgment over Nineveh is that if God actually relents and allows his justice to happen, the Ninevites can't stand, Jonah can't stand, the Israelites can't stand, no one can stand. <laughs> Jonah can't see that right now. All he can see is his plant. He, he, he can't really see the bigger picture of God's salvation from where he is. But the reality is, is like when God actually comes in judgment for Nineveh and fulfills this prophecy, which, which um, he also comes in judgment for Israel and they can't stand either. They also don't stand up to the test. They also fail. Jonah's own people, uh, who, who he's, you know, who he's sort of, you know, biased towards in this story pretty heavily. Like, why don't you send me the Israelites? Why are you send me the Ninevites? Like, let me preach to them. They also fail. Um, and and what does that teach us about who God is? What, why is God holding back his justice? Um, there's another interesting thing here uh, that I found kind of interesting um, uh, that, that is a little bit relevant to the time that we're in. Um, it says at the end of the very last line of the book of Jonah is, is also much cattle, right? Um, it, it's it's kind of a strange phrase. Like it, I am in a in a society that's not agrarian, we probably this probably doesn't pop as much for us. Um, but there's plenty of, of examples of of what this sort of means throughout the Old Testament. It, actually, there's a great story uh, in the book of Genesis, which is a few hundred years. A couple centuries, more than a couple centuries before this. But point being, uh, there's a story where Jacob uh, and his his uncle Laban are are actually negotiating over the livestock, which is this word essentially cattle is actually livestock, and they're negotiating and 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 they're talking about oh well I, Jacob says can I have this color uh, sheep for my herd and you can have that color sheep and 
and then they go into this weird competitive breeding program where they try to like outsmart the other to get more of the livestock than the and and it's actually kind of a very very strange passage in Genesis, but but what it illustrates is 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 when it, when God is talking about the livestock here uh, of the city, He's talking about that's when Jacob and when Jacob is is negotiating with his his uncle Laban over the livestock, they're negotiating well, like this is their economic system. They're an agrarian society. The livestock of the city is the city's wealth, um, and so. It, uh, it, it's, 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 it's incredibly relevant. Like when we now have politicians speaking about the, you know, we're, we're in a lot of ways, this is, we're in a city in crisis facing, facing um, a disaster. And, and this actual, this conversation about the livestock, about, uh, you know, what, what God is basically saying is, is uh, there's the 120,000 people who are spiritually clueless, clueless and also uh, has a big GDP. Like, like has a big gross domestic product. It has a big uh, stock market, you know, whatever the proxy might be um, uh, for us to understand this in the modern day. But like, so when you look at this and you look at at how the the king of Nineveh reacts, if you remember when I was reading that um, decree, the king of Nineveh says something similar uh, to what we've heard recently. Is he says. Don't let the beasts or the herds. Nobody eats, nobody drinks, including the livestock. You know. So what the king of Nineveh says in response? Because in our political climate right now, there's been a lot of debate. Um, uh, some politicians saying, "Well, we should open the economy because the economy is more important," or, "Or you know, we should keep the economy closed because people you know save lives." And and the king of Nineveh is, is basically making this exact proclamation. When, when it brings light, what, what, what we see here in this example is bringing light to what the king of Nineveh is saying. When he's saying, don't feed or, feed or let your animals eat or drink, he's essentially bringing the economy to its knees. <laughs> like, you, your food, your, your, your livelihood, stop everything, right? I mean, it's, just, it's the same exact proclamation. And, and, and I think the, when faced with utter destruction, the king is able to see you know, this is what's more, this is what's important. Let's 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 stop the entire economy. Let's stop everything and um, pray to God that He relents. Right? Um, sometimes I wonder, like, you know, do we look at it that way? Um, it, not not necessarily to elevate the King of Nineveh's reaction here, but like, you know, that's how dire the crisis is. Like, it wasn't really a debate for them. Like. Our, our society is, is really struggling with this debate, well, not too much, because most people are actually quarantining, but of this debate of whether we should put the entire economy on hold or not. So it shows you the direness, like how much they understand the situation. But, but it also shows you that God cares about it, because he, you know, he says, I care about the people who are spiritually clueless, and I also care about the, the economy. Um, and... And so, therefore, these things are actually incredibly important. And so, it's good for me to relent this disaster. It's good for me to stop them. Um, and and he he's like again another interesting window into into the, to the character of who God is. Um, and and in that total in that character of God, where you know we're seeing His mercy, the aspect of His mercy. And later on, 
when we finally do see his justice, um, when when he does actually wipe out the city of Nineveh and all the cattle with it and everything, you know, and, and actually uh, Nebuchadnezzar salts the earth, which destroys the possibility of there ever being an agrarian society there again for centuries. Um, you know, so that justice comes into play uh, in epic form. And it leaves us wanting, because what Jonah is saying here is kind of right, but it's not completely right, because when, when Jonah is actually faced with, when, when the Assyrians are actually faced with, when the Israelites are actually faced with the justice of God, none of them can stand. And none of us can stand. All of us need the mercy of God, because none of us could stand to his justice, except one. When we first talked about Jonah 1, we, we, we opened up the book of Matthew and we saw that Jesus had proclaimed that Jonah's life was, was a proclamation, a sign for Jesus' coming, right? He, we opened up the book of Matthew and you see that, that, that Jesus said that, that sign of Jonah being in the belly of the whale and the Ninevites repenting is a sign of me. Because there was one man who could stand up to the justice of God. There was one man who could stand up who could rightfully say that he could say uh, in righteousness, you all deserve this justice. He could sit outside the city and say, you all deserve it. And instead, he willingly went and took that justice of God upon himself. And what Jonah's life here you know, at the end, the end of the book of Jonah, it's very similar to, to, to the, the beginning, the epic tale um, of the fish being swallowed. At the end, Jonah pleads for death because he wants the justice of God and he didn't get it or he thinks he didn't get it. And he pleads for death. But Jesus actually knows what the justice of God is. And when Jesus comes face to face with the justice of God in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus doesn't plead. He pleads for the cup to pass from him. He has the option. He pleads for the cup to pass from him. He doesn't ask for death. He pleads for it to go like, is there any other way, God? And then when it finally comes, when, when the justice of God comes to he willingly goes in and sacrifices himself so that the rest of us could have the mercy. And I think this is what is so stark. The current, the current, this is why Jonah 4 is here. Because, you know, again, if I were writing this book, I wouldn't have included this chapter where I looked like kind of an idiot. Jonah 4 is here to, to allude to the fact that, that like, Nineveh's repentance isn't enough. Jonah's preaching isn't enough. Uh, it's not enough. We need more. The story does not end here. <laughs> the story doesn't end with Jonah on a high note. It ends with Jonah on a petty note. We are looking forward to the point where God's justice and mercy can actually come together. When both the sins of the world can be, uh, the, the sins of the world can actually be uh, accounted for. And also, that you are a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and resenting from disaster. 
And there's only one place in all of history where this comes together, and that's in the cross of Jesus Christ. So the book of Jonah chapter 4 is here to show us, to leave us wanting, the prophet who, instead of going outside the city, um, lays his life down to save it. And uh, these things, I look at that, and, and, and given that perspective, given we know so much more about this history um, than Jonah does, given that we know so much more about God's eventual plan for justice for both Nineveh and Israel, uh, but ultimately for us, that we know that we could have come under the same judgment and did not. Now, how much more can we then go preach to the great city? How much more can you go to the spiritually clueless and say, hey, look, I was spiritually clueless, uh, and he saved me. <laughs> Let's turn to our Father and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this illustration. We thank you that uh, you opened the scripture to us. We thank you so much that you did not give us what we deserve, that, that your justice and your mercy could actually be resolved, and that we both not get away with it, but also not fall under uh, the judgment we deserve, um, and, and, and that we could actually experience mercy in a way that the Ninevites and Jonah uh, did not see in their lifetimes. These things we pray. Jesus, amen. For further information, please feel free to check us out at firstpresbyterian.sf.org or come and worship with us on Sunday mornings at 1015. We meet at 110 Embarcadero, just a block away from the Ferry Building, and we can't wait to see you.